Well, good morning, Life Church, and welcome to you. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online this morning. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Hope you're doing well. We're going to continue our series going through the Bible called One Story, and today we're going to talk about what some call holy war, and I think this might be the most difficult subject we'll tackle all year long. Um, if you're new watching, you're visiting uh, with us here at Life Church. my name is Brian Brightman, so welcome to you. Just kidding, I'm Chip Kelly, pastor of Life Church. It's good to have you this morning. Okay, there's a second century character by the name of Marcion who said there was an irreconcilable gap between the loving God that Jesus taught about and what he said was the cruel and violent God of the Old Testament. And his solution was to do a cut and paste job and just remove the Old Testament from scripture. So is that what we should do? Should we just ignore hard passages and pretend they're not there? Well, we're going to do the opposite today. We're going to face these things head on. And I want you to know up front, I've, I've got some insight on these things, but I don't have all the answers. There are lots of very, very smart people that disagree on lots of these issues, and uh, they disagree in pretty significant ways. So I'm going to ask all of us to fully dial in because it's really impossible to have a really authentic faith in God and his revealed word without facing this or any topic head on. So I want to start with the hardest passage there is. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Moses is talking to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. And he tells them the rules that's going to govern the warfare as they enter into Canaan, which is the promised land. Verse 2 from Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. And they did. Then later on, as they took the city of Jericho, it says in Joshua chapter 6, they devoted to the city, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. What's going on here? Like, why the devastation, we wonder? I want to make some observations about the role of war in the Old Testament, because sometimes people have a way of just spiritualizing over these issues, these texts here, and they read about Old Testament battles, and then they talk about how it means, well, this means that God will strengthen me in my battles against fear, or obstacles in life, and things like that. And of course, that's true. But to honor scripture, really honor it, you've got to start with the actual literal text. These are real battles with real people. And that's what we're going to look at today. So here's the first observation out of three. First one, the term holy war is never used in scripture. It's a phrase that's been used a lot, but you will not find that in the Bible. There's nothing holy about war. And scholars uh, disagree a lot about, and they debate about where the phrase comes from. They think it comes from Greek origin, but it is one thing for sure, it is not found in scripture. The first episode of violence in scripture doesn't occur until after the fall. This is different from the other religions in Israel's day, where the small g gods seemed to be petty and difficult and they would war with each other. They were violent with each other all over the place. But in the Bible, the violence doesn't occur until after the fall of man, where Cain kills Abel. And then thereafter, the primary indicator of the fallenness of humanity to God is its deep violence. Now we saw this together in Genesis chapter six at the very beginning of this series where it said, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. Now, you'll never understand the Old Testament world unless you understand the extent to which it was just dominated by violence and war and a very, very low view of human beings. Now, I'll show you a little backdrop to this. When I say the word spring, what association comes to mind for you? 
I mean, for lots of people, they associate it with something outside, like flowers or gardening or baseball. Some associate it with spring cleaning if you're a neat freak. But I want you to notice this, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Read this aloud together with me, would you? In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. So spring equals war back in these ancient times. It was just that time of year, as casually as we talk about baseball season rolling around. It's just the context of that world. It's so different from our society. Now, not all parts of our world are that different from the ancient world. A while back, there was a National Geographic special on war in Afghanistan, and they interviewed a man who was holding an axe. And he said these words. He said, I use this axe to decapitate 1,300 people. He was smiling and laughing as he said these words. He said, we're called to kill the infidels. Now, we're horrified by that. In the ancient world, they weren't. They lived in what might be called a culture of war. And what looks like barbarism and cruelty to us, well, it didn't shock them standard operating procedure. In the spring, the time when kings went off to war. War was just another one of those institutions like polygamy and slavery, which just filled the ancient world in which Israel lived. It's the fallenness of the human race, and God would have to start right there. And he's gonna form a nation and move them one step at a time, all the way up into the time of Jesus. But violence did not come until after the fall of man came, and then God was deeply disturbed by it. It was not holy. Okay, here's the second observation. The wars in the Old Testament are an expression of God's judgment upon the evil of Canaanite culture. Now, there's an important statement in Genesis 15. God's promising Abraham land for the, his people, but he says they can't occupy it yet. And God gives a very important reason why. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, he says. Now, Abraham at that point is in Canaan. He's in the promised land when God is talking to him. And God says, you can't have the land now. It's gonna happen in the future. Why? Why does God say that? Look at the end of this verse. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God's saying the culture is defiled, but it's not defiled past the point of no return at this point. So in effect, God's gonna offer mercy to the Canaanite people and give them time to repent. Now we know from Joshua chapter two that even the people in Jericho had heard about the God of Israel and the great things that he'd done. And even Rahab, the woman, put her trust in this God, but the Canaanites as a whole did not repent and their sin did reach its full measure. And then after that, judgment came. Now this is reflected at many places in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18 is kind of a catalog of all kinds of twisted practices that were part of Canaanite religion at that time. Leviticus 18.24 says, This is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Explains how it happened. One of the practices listed is the sacrifice of children to a god named Molech. Talked about this a couple weeks ago if you want to go back and watch that. I know this happened a long time, thousands of years ago, so it's easy for us to brush over this real quickly. But you'll not understand God's concern over this until we understand the depth of depravity here. So to help us, I'm gonna use a more contemporary example of a culture that started to approach that full measure of sin, Nazi Germany. There was a book called One Instance, One Child. It's written by a historian by the name of Philip Friedman. And this is an eyewitness account of what happened to one Jewish girl in a Warsaw ghetto during the Nazi occupation. It says, Zosia was a little girl. One of the Germans became aware of her beautiful diamond-like dark eyes. 
I could make two rings out of them, he said, one for myself and one for my wife. His colleague is holding the girl. Let's see, he says, let's see whether they really are so beautiful. Better yet, let's examine them in our hands. The soldiers begin to laugh. One of them proposes that they take the eyes out. What happens next is the fainted child lies on the floor, two bloody wounds where her eyes were. And the mother, just driven mad, is being held back. And soon after, they decide that it's necessary to murder this blind child. Friends, that's one child. Multiply that times another, times another, times another, times another. Cruelty upon cruelty, generation after generation. Think about what it does to the children that are brought up in such a culture. Then you begin to get some sense of what it means for a culture to reach this full measure of sin. And God says it has to be stopped, has to be stopped. So these wars are part of an expression of judgment upon evil by a holy God. Okay, third observation. The wars are not just a judgment on evil. Additionally, the Canaanites had to be removed because Israel's worship of the one true God needed to survive. And it's very clear that Israel's devotion to God, God sees this perfectly clearly, that their devotion to him is fragile at best. And if the Canaanites were allowed to remain in Israel, well, the Israelites would be seduced into the same kind of twisted and evil and cruel practices that they were doing all the time. There was a tablet that was excavated from a city near Canaan that shed some light on Canaanite religious practices of that day. This is from a city called Ugarit. These tablets tell about the god Baal, who's the god of fertility. And in the Canaanite religion, he is killed by another god, who then in turn is killed by another god. And then Baal comes back to life. Now remember, this is the religion the people are learning and the children are being brought up in. And so... Baal comes back to life and has sex with yet another god, and that ensures the fertility of the earth for one more growing season. So for the Canaanites, every spring when the rain stopped, it was as if Baal died. So for them, for them, sex with cultic prostitutes was designed to induce Baal to make the earth fertile again. One scholar put it this way, he said this, amazing. He said, sex with temple prostitutes was as much a part of a farmer's job as was the actual operations of agriculture. Again, think of this in terms of real people. Think about how, how protective dads are of their little girls. Dads, you think about this for a minute. Imagine growing up in a culture where fathers are used to their daughters growing up and being involved in this kind of activity. That's their religion. And God says, my people must be different. Now, it's important to know that Israel does not get off unscathed here. They themselves get judged pretty harshly. Just as God used Israel as an instrument of judgment for other nations, so God also used other, other nations as an instrument of judgment for Israel. So it was harsh for them, as well as harsh through them. They'd have to learn that God was not just a genie in a bottle to be their secret weapon. Now, God starts teaching this lesson pretty early on, in Joshua chapter 5, God sends an angel there. Here's how it goes. While Joshua was, was there near Jericho, he looked up and saw right in front of him a man standing holding his drawn sword. This is the angel. Joshua stepped up to him and said, Whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? Well, that's an important question, isn't it? Whose side are you on, ours or theirs? Or theirs? And the guy says, no. Well, that wasn't one of the options, was it? It's like saying to the guy, what's three plus three? And he says, chocolate. Just Here's the real, here's what the verse says. He says, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. The man here saying, Joshua, the question is not whether God is on your side. The question is, are you on God's side? 
In essence, he's saying, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. Now, the judgment deal here, it cuts both ways. And the truth is, Israel learned a lot more from their losses along the way than they did from their victories along the way. All right, now here, here's where the rubber hits the road. We can't just ignore this. Yes, it's horrible. It's unthinkably harsh. But here's the big question that goes along with it. What happens to the people in the cities that Israel destroys? What happens to them? When they're called to kill everyone and everything in a city, are all those pagan people just destined for hell? I mean, they're judged for their godlessness. Lots of people just write them off as kind of faceless victims who got in the way of the great Old Testament stories of Israel. But they're real people, real moms and dads and children and friends. No, they didn't follow the God of Israel, but could they follow a God they didn't even know? Again, we New Covenant, New Testament believers, look at the battle stories of the Old Testament, and we say, well, from this we learn that God will always be with me as we, as we go into our battles against fear, against temptation, and other things in our lives. If I believe and if I walk in faith, then I'll win those battles. And yes, that is true. But we've got to start with the literal word and in the original context, not metaphors. Winning those battles meant slaughtering every man, woman, and child in the city. The sword was certainly not metaphorical to them. So if you're a resident of that city and Israel comes through and slaughters everyone, including your family, are you okay with just being a metaphor? Are you okay with being an unfortunate, insignificant pawn in another nation's quest for greatness? Didn't think so. So again, let's ask the uncomfortable question. What happens to the people in the cities that Israel destroys? Biblically, there really only are three options for where to land on this. Biblically, now orthodox speaking, uh, there are plenty of people that say stuff like, well, I believe when we die, we turn into unicorns and we get our own planet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about orthodox Christianity based on the Bible. There's really only three places that you can land on this. And there are some biblical passages, of course, to support each viewpoint. Which of them holds the character of God most closely? That's really what it comes down to. Now, I'll show you the three viewpoints and several commonly used biblical verses that people use to support that viewpoint. Now, I'm drawing our attention to this so you can make your own decision. It's important to understand this issue because it will give you the opportunity and the motivation to explore the character of God, which is always, always a good thing. And I, I believe it's okay to say, I, this is what I believe about this issue right here but I don't have all the answers. If I'm off a bit, I pray that God reveals his truth to me. Honestly, that's how I pray all the time. Now, I've given this a very long season of study and I've landed on what I believe the Bible tells us. And I believe it certainly matches the heart and the revealed character of God through his word. So the first and most common traditional belief can be called eternal punishment. Eternal punishment, that is to say, that God punishes forever and ever those who did not choose to be followers of Jesus. This includes people who never heard of God and never had an earthly chance to be a follower of Jesus and the one true God. Now, some commonly called upon verses for this viewpoint are like in Romans chapter one. The wrath of God, it says, is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. Goes on to say, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that people are without excuse. Now, while that does not state eternal punishment outrightly, it does state the anger of God against wickedness. So there's no winking at sin, that is clear. In John chapter three, it says, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. 
Okay, and now the most commonly quoted verse, defending eternal punishment. The entire concept of eternal punishment hinges primarily on this singular verse of scripture. Matthew 25, 46 says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the only place in the Bible where those two words are found together, and it's only in some Bibles. It's over a dozen English translations which don't, concept, uh, don't show the concept of eternal punishment on this or any of their pages. And that word eternal has multiple translations. That is not disputable. And more on that in just a minute. But listen, listen to a very important point. That verse we just read is not at all about receiving Jesus or not. It is about personally caring for the sick the imprisoned, the hungry, and the homeless. If you don't do those things, you go to hell. If we're going literal, literal with this verse. More on that in just a minute. The second viewpoint is commonly called annihilationism or destructionism. That is to say that all unsaved and ungodly people are destroyed and cease to exist at some point. The people who hold to this belief will call upon a verse like Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus speaks here and he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then in Philippians 3, 19, it says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Then Romans 6, 13 says, the wages of sin is death. Then Psalm 1, 6, the way of the ungodly shall perish. So this viewpoint says the souls of the ungodly will just someday cease to exist. Now, truthfully, there's probably the least amount of biblical evidence to support this position. There's some, but there's not a whole lot. Now, the third viewpoint is commonly called ultimate reconciliation. Ultimate reconciliation. That is to say that the sacrifice of Jesus paid for the sins of every human being. And those that receive him by faith get to live a life in connection to God right here in this life on this earth. And then they are welcomed into heaven with God after they die. And those that do not receive Jesus on earth will be judged and sent to hell. But contrary to popular assumption, it will not be forever and ever. There are very good biblical reasons to believe that after a season, they are reconciled to God forever. Now some say, well, what about that verse we just read that says they will go away to eternal punishment while the righteous go to eternal life. Well, that word that is uh, translated there, eternal, is very frequently translated differently. It means an age, a period of time, or an intensity of experience, not forever. The phrase there is aeon kalazo. Kalazo is a term from horticulture. It means to prune or trim back branches so that something can flourish. So the phrase really is more accurately translated, an age of pruning, an age of pruning. How long? I don't know. <laughs> Only God knows. Here's what I do know. That word eternal there is used in many other verses, and it definitely does not mean eternal or forever. Now, I will say that heaven is eternal because God is eternal. Life with God in heaven is eternal because we'd be connected with God eternally and God lives forever. So it's not either or in this way. Now, let me just say, we're talking about this word aeon, as if it means forever or not. If it, is, if it is always translated forever, then look at these verses. Jonah was in the fish forever. Well, until three days later. The mountains are eternal well, until they're scattered, according to Habakkuk 3. The law is eternal, well, until it vanishes away in Leviticus and Hebrews. 
the cir circumcision is eternal, well, until the new covenant. Animal sacrifices are eternal, well, until they're ended by Christ. God dwells in Solomon's temple forever, well, until it's destroyed. A slave serves his master forever, well, until death ends his servitude. So obviously that word also means an age, a period of time, a season. Again, heaven is eternal because God is eternal and we're joined to God forever, okay? Now listen, eternal punishment, eternal punishment stems principally from the theology of Augustine in the fourth century. This was not the predominant view at that point in time. Augustine's stance assumes that the vast majority of human beings will never be saved. Many other theologians don't believe that. Lots of them adhere to the ultimate reconciliation stance. They and I believe that the sin of Adam was not more powerful than the sacrificial death of Jesus. Look at what Romans says, Romans 5. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Then again later in Romans 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded, what's those words? All the more, right? Listen closely, friends. To believe in eternal punishment is to clearly say that Adam's sin is more powerful and far-reaching than the sacrificial death of Jesus. That where sin abounded, grace abounded insufficiently. That's not what the Bible says, is it? Let me just quickly spin through these other New Testament verses scattered throughout the, uh, the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus says, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 12. Then in, 1 John, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of a few? No, the world. In 1 John 4, We testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of a few? No, the world. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, in John 6. Then in Luke 2, the angel speaks and says, I bring you good tidings of great joy will be to some people? No, to all people. And in Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Then in 1 John chapter 2, he, meaning Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We cannot ignore that. All right, now here's a verse that many of us are very familiar with. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Right, we've quoted that a million times. Now we treat this word draw, I will draw all men to me. We'll treat that word draw as a subtle pull of the heart towards the truth of Jesus. And we live it out by extending this wide open invitation to accept Jesus, open to anyone. And that's good, that's right, we should do that. But the real definition of that word draw is nothing like that. The word draw is the Greek word helku, which means literally to drag, to drag. It's not restrict, uh, restricted by the resistance of the object being pulled. Once the judgment, this is what the scripture means, once the judgment of this world has run its course and the ruler of this world is cast out, Christ will drag all men to himself. He confirms this just a few verses later when he says the words, I came to save the world. I came to save the world. Now just consider for a moment the unrestricted force of this word drag or draw or drag in these examples. John 21 says, Peter went up and dragged, there's that same word, helku, Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish. 
Peter didn't politely invite the fish to land and wait for their decision. No, he dragged it up there. John 21, in Acts 16, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged, there's that word again, dragged them into the marketplace. Same word, not an invitation. They were pulled there. Acts 21, taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. James 2, is it not the rich who drag, not invite, but drag you into the courts? It's worth thinking about. Now, another well-known verse that's quoted by Christians very frequently is Philippians 2.9. Beautiful verse. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a beautiful verse. Eternal hell doctrine removes the joy that should come from that verse and puts it into sort of a gun-to-your-head, forced admission kind of feel. I mean, is it to God's glory that sinners who are lost forever must reluctantly admit that they were wrong? Like God or an angel is standing over them saying, say it, say it, say Jesus is Lord. Is that what the end looks like? Let me give just a few provocative questions to help us think about this. Is God, this is even difficult to say, is God the tormentor? If death and hell and Satan are thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed, and if torment is eternal, then God is the tormentor. And if that's true, did Jesus come to save us from God? Does that sound right to you? Have billions of people been created only to spend eternity in conscious punishment and torment, suffering infinitely for the finite sins they committed in the few years they lived on this earth? Is our God, our loving Father, our provider, our protector, or is God really the kind of judge who can and will torment the people he created and says that he loves, and torment them worse than what the worst humans in history have ever executed? Is God like the characters in the stories that Jesus would tell? Someone who searches for a lost coin until he finds it, like a shepherd who doesn't rest until that lost sheep is back safely in the fold like a father who runs out to greet and embrace the son who blew it horribly. Is God like that? Or in the end, does God just give up? Is he not like those parables that Jesus told? And if not, why did Jesus bother telling them? I believe they're all true. I believe Jesus was representing the heart of the father, that he is that good, he is that loving, he is that gracious. Now with that in mind, Let's go back to the original question. What happens to those peoples in the cities that Israel destroys? Think about this. Does the sacrifice of Jesus extend to them as well? Does the grace of God cover them as well? I mean, they're taken from this life prematurely by execution order that came from God. I mean, they're living a horrible life and probably only had a horrible future. And since it's compassionate and loving to remove them from this earth and that horrible existence, and the grace of God covers them. Or does God just say, sorry, folks, sucks to be you, I guess. All right, one more thought concerning all this as I continue to close. Here's where we go wrong. Here's where we go wrong. When we think about salvation, we tend to think only in terms of heaven and hell. That misses the point, <laughs> misses the point. God sent Jesus to make a way for us to live in connection with God Almighty, to live in relationship with him, knowing him, growing in him, being guided by him. Now, today, 
the invitation of God is not to get a ticket punched to heaven so we can just breathe a sigh of relief and go on living with me on the throne of my own life forever. I mean, is it, is it, does God take a win from, well, I prayed the prayer, now I can ignore God for the rest of my life. Is that a win for God? This has been a lot, I know, I know. But there's quite a bit more that I can't go into. If you're interested, I can send it to you via email. It's very thorough, it's quite convincing. Uh, changed my mind 10, 15 years ago or so. Now, obviously, obviously, friends, this is where I land. But you don't have to. You don't have to land there. Look at it all closely and make your own decision. It's a big deal. But, listen, it is secondary. <laughs> we talked about this. It's, it's important, but it is secondary. First and foremost is this. God calls us all to repent of our sin and, and unbelief and receive the forgiveness and new life that Jesus alone offers. See, we're invited not just to avoid hell, but to live in a loving, dynamic relationship with God now. Jesus is the only way to that life, period. Now, there is a mindset I must address real quickly, even though I wish I didn't have to. I've heard some people say, I need to know that Hitler were burned forever. I need to know that Stalin's going to burn forever. Really? Really? Perfect, holy God, way up here. All imperfect, sinful humans, way, way, way down here. And we're going to point to one another as sinners and say, God, you need to punish this person really badly. Now, I'll receive your love and grace and forgiveness, but he needs to burn. Really? Unfortunately, that says a whole lot more about you than it does about God or anybody else. All right, let me wrap up today with this. When we stand before God face to face and all is revealed, will God be smaller or bigger than we think? Will God be less powerful or even more powerful than we think? Will God be less loving or even more loving than we think? Friends, I am convinced that he will be bigger and stronger and even more loving than we could ever even comprehend. Now, let me just say this. My hope for you, friends, my hope for you is not that you would say a prayer to avoid hell. No. It is that you would learn to keep company with the God who loves you and that you would learn a life of love. I've been saying that constantly for the last 15 years, and I will stop when I'm six feet under. The good news of Jesus is the best news, extending to everyone. I want we bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word, which lights our path, and we're so grateful for that. For God, I pray that in any way in which I've come up short and I've missed it in some way, I pray that you would have our minds only hold fast to your truth. That's what I want. That's what we want, Lord. We want your truth. We know that we could never comprehend the depth of your love and the expanse of your grace. But Lord, I pray that we'd have a better understanding today than we did yesterday. God, help us with this. We know that you can, Lord. And now we believe that you will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for spending this time with us. It's been great having you. Uh, we have a public gathering coming up this coming Sunday, which is Easter Sunday. We're meeting at 6 p.m. 
at the Orlando Museum of Art. I hope you make your plans, make your plans to come and bring a friend. Uh, we'll have some great time of worship and time in the word, and we'll have some food uh, right there on, on site available to us afterwards if you'd like to stick around and fellowship. I hope that you do. All right, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Palm Sunday. See you soon. Mm -hmm.